Ambreen Khan, and you're listening to Inspired. This week, beliefs about race, religion, and voting rights draw our attention to Texas. Later in the show, we get into the dramatic events that unfolded in Austin. We'll hear from B. Moreland, a Presbyterian lay leader and the executive director of Texas Impact, a multi-faith state network. They're expecting a 1,000 faithful on July 19th to stand on the steps of the Texas state capitol rallying, let my people vote. That's exactly one month after the first federal holiday commemorating Juneteenth National Independence Day. Now, if you think you heard a play on the popular rallying cry found in the book of Exodus, you're not wrong. Texas Impact, the NAACP, and LULAC, the oldest civil rights organization of Latin American citizens, are invoking the liberation story from the book of Exodus, recounting Moses and Aaron pleading with the Pharaoh to release the enslaved Israelites. Linking Juneteenth, Exodus, and the present-day legislative battle over voting access is no coincidence, according to Pulitzer Prize-winning historian and author Annette Gordon-Reed. In her new book, On Juneteenth, she questions the dominant caricatures and events that we associate with Texas, challenging readers to ask which ones are missing and why. The series of essays intertwine two narratives. One explains how laws and social norms are used to preserve racial hierarchies alongside another, her own exceptional story, as an African-American girl who comes of age in the wake of Brown versus Board of Education. While it is short and easy to read, On Juneteenth left me acutely aware of the many illusions I have about the Lone Star State. Let's get to my conversation. Annette Gordon-Reed, it is a pleasure to have you on the program. I am a fan of your work. Happy to be here. My first question is, why this book now? And why the choice to bring yourself into it? Well, um, my editor at Live Right, Robert Weil, Bob Weil, has been after me for a while to do a book about Texas. But we had in mind a big book about Texas, where I would talk about the history of Texas, maybe the development of slavery. And I might introduce it by talking about my family to some degree but then go off into the history. And this past year, I did an essay for The New Yorker about Juneteenth, about the holiday, and celebrating it as a child and what it meant. And some months before that, I had done a book review for The New York Review of Books, of five books about Texas, five history books about Texas, and one book of essays, Larry McMurtry, talking about Texas So Texas was kind of on my mind uh, this past year. And then when the pandemic struck and Harvard went virtual, I decided to remain here in New York with my husband because there was no point in going down to Cambridge and be by myself and do classes from from my apartment there. So I stayed here in New York and I began to think about, well, being in that situation made you think about life and death, as we all did at that. We were part of that, uh, part of that moment. And I thought about my parents, and I wondered how they would have taken this situation, how they would have responded to it. And the more I thought about them, I missed them. 
And Bob, after my essay came out, actually before he had read the essay in The New Yorker, suggested that I might do a book about Texas, but it would be a short book about Texas. And I decided that I would do that, but I would do it by introducing my family, as you said, introducing myself into the narrative as a way of opening up the discussion about Texas. I really wanted to have the experience of thinking about my mother and my father who are no longer living, thinking about our lives together and accomplishing being close to them while I also explained this state that was on my mind because of the review that I had done. And because since I've been up here for many years now, I've been often put in the position of having to explain Texas. People say, well, what's going on down there? Why are people this way or doing this, that, or the other thing? So I thought that the book, as I conceived it, would be able to achieve those two goals, playing to nostalgia, thinking about my parents, and also talking about Texas. So it, it is a departure for me. This is not typically what I do. I'm more detached in my other writings of history. I'm outside of the story in a way. I might talk about myself in the introduction, but once I get into the story, to the history, I, I move away from it as much as I can. But I also thought that this would be a way of reaching a larger audience to talk not just to adults, but I really want this to be the kind of book that teenagers, young people could pick up and perhaps identify with a narrator who is being open about herself and her, her life and how, you know, to some degree, we're all a part of history. We could all tell the histories of our times by talking about things that happened in our lives. And so I wanted it to be accessible to lots of people. And I know memoir, I have to confess, has not been, you know, one of my favorite genres. <laughs> uh, but I, yet here we are. Yeah, but here we are. Exactly. And I, I try to deal with some of the problems I have with the form by talking about myself as little as possible. I mean, I mentioned my mother and father's names yeah. and a handful of other people. But I thought that the more I went into like a family genealogy and family tree and talking to everybody, then it would become more memoir than history. And I wanted a particular balance. And I thought that by being present, but not too present, uh, would help me maintain that, that balance between mm. memoir and actual history. As a historian, as a professor, do you feel that there's a pressure to be quote-unquote, objective and remove the potential subjectivity that a person brings when they identify with the subject that they're teaching or talking about? Well, yeah, I think we can't be totally objective, but the thinking is that we should strive to be objective um, so that you can allow the information that you're finding to take you where you need to go rather than having a preset understanding about how things should work out and, and that, you know, to see people working, sometimes working against the material in favor of their preferences. Hmm. So, yeah, there is that notion that you should try. We, we all know you can't have 
total objectivity, but you should not be sub- substituting your desires and your wishes um, in, and placing them on the people you're writing about mm-hmm. on the circumstances you're writing about. Yeah. So th- that's definitely there when you're writing a memoir and you, you, the parts that are about you, these are my impressions, you know, and, and they can't be wrong in that sense. I mean, I can be wrong about factual things, but when I'm talking about my feelings, you know, how my experiences, how they affected me, there's, there's some freedom in that too, that you don't have to end note that, you know, in yeah. the way you do with other kinds of things. Yeah. As a professor, as a woman, as an African-American in the academy, do you find you encounter history presented as objective that in fact is more subjective or selective in the narratives that are included? Well, yes, uh, I, I have seen that. That's what my first book really is about. Mm. Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings and American Controversy. It was going through and seeing the way historians who were writing about the story of Jefferson and Hemings had preferences about the answer to that question, whether or not they had children. And it led them to ignore evidence, to accept evidence that was less than supportable coming into the matter when you're dealing with a topic that was very touchy for people and meant a lot to folks. I mean, that's why history is an art. It's not a science. There's no magic formula. And sometimes you, you hit the right balance and sometimes you tip over, but it's the, it's the attempt and the good faith attempt that I think that people, people respond to. Your book arrives at a time when we now have a federal holiday for the first time before July 4th commemorating the events of what happened on Juneteenth. In the opening chapters of your book, before you get to those events in Galveston, you lay out this backstory about Texas. Can I ask you just to share a little bit of that backstory? When you encounter someone who says, explain Texas to me, (laughs) what do you say? Well, what I think it's really important for people to understand is that Texas is part of the Southwest and the emphasis has been on the Western part of it. When you think of Texas, you think of cowboys. I did a language study program in France when I was in college. I lived with a family and they knew I was from Texas and they had an understanding about what Texas was about. It was about the desert in a way. It was about, you know, cattle. And I think that that's the kind of predominant image that people have of the place, when in fact, the southern part of Texas is incredibly important to the formation of the state and to the culture of the state today. Texas was a slave society. Uh, Stephen F. Austin from the very beginning, understood that slavery was going to be critical to the enterprise because the people he was bringing over from Georgia, Alabama, and the other states came with the expectation that their property rights in enslaved people would be protected. And Austin says, if people came to Texas without the institution of slavery, they could expect to be poor for a very long time because, you know, it was backbreaking work in felling trees and turning East Texas into 
a part of the cotton empire, which is what they wanted to do. So most people, as a matter of fact, have lived in the eastern part of Texas, which is the old south. It's very much like the old south. And so I would tell people that a lot of the things that are coming out of Texas, these are racial questions that grow out of the racial hierarchy that was created by the institution of slavery. And that continued even after slavery was ended, even after Juneteenth, 1865, when slavery uh, ended in Texas, the question of Black citizenship, Black voting was controversial among many whites and has been something that has, that they've been fighting uh, since that time period. And it's interesting that here we are in 2021, dealing with the same kind of issues. Once you understand that this is not about cowboys and oil men, as exemplified in the movie Giant, which I'm sure many people have heard of if they haven't seen, that tells a narrative about the, in the beginning, Texas was a place of the cattle rancher and cattlemen and cowboys. And then uh, they were challenged by the oil men, the people who struck oil. And then the two of them come together when oil is discovered on the land of the cattle ranchers. So they become one society, but they leave out the plantation owner. A land of infinite variety and violent contrasts. A land where today's ranch hand can become tomorrow's multimillionaire. They leave out the kind of people who came over with Stephen F. Austin and created Texas as part of a cotton empire growing cotton and sugarcane and other crops. My ancestors on both sides of my family were brought from other parts of the Deep South into Texas. My mother's family on one side, I can trace back to the 1820s in Texas, before Texas is a republic and certainly before it becomes a state. And my father's side at least the 1860s. And their ancestors came from these other deep Southern places uh, to, you know, recreate the slave society there. It's really important for people to understand that because you understand the racial mores and the political life of the place. You describe in the book the events that led up to Juneteenth, but you actually spend a little bit more time, at least in my read, on the way that the society and the culture used extrajudicial means and other mechanisms to keep that hierarchy in place. And you describe the role that people play who aren't necessarily named, like judges and lawyers and um, and school teachers. There are different roles that people play in reinforcing and supporting the social mores that are an extension of that racial hierarchy. When you look at the events around this year's Juneteenth celebration, do you feel like they told a full story of what Juneteenth means and and what happens even after you have a legal proclamation? Mm-hmm. Well, I think 
Black Texans understand this very well because we have been celebrating this holiday since 1866. The first anniversary after 1865, you know, kicked off these celebrations that have gone on and on. And they they're typically when you have them in public places, there are speeches that are given, there's music and so forth. There's an educational component to it. And I think Black Texans understand that even though there was great joy at hearing the news that enslaved people would no longer be in slavery, would never be treated as property in the way they were before, they knew they were in for a struggle. (laughs) They were amidst a group of people who were still very hostile to them and were hostile to the idea of incorporating them into the society on an equal basis. I've used the phrase hope amid hostility, that just because chattel slavery ended, it did not end the racial hierarchy. The culture of the place, the culture of of education, of voting, of social life, all of those kinds of things were still geared towards maintaining this hierarchy. And it's been a fight ever since then. So it was it's a hopeful story in a lots of ways, but I'm hoping that people will, as the years go on, have more of an opportunity to reflect on the ways in which it was still going to be an amazing struggle, even after the end of slavery. There are growing efforts to update social studies and U.S. history books to more accurately reflect the events that surrounded chattel slavery, Reconstruction, and the era of Jim and Jane Crow in the United States. And that's been accompanied by a growing number of attacks, specifically on social studies and U.S. history teachers. How do you respond? Well, you know, I think there's a lot There's a lot going on with this. There's a concern that when you talk about what actually happened, that young people will feel bad about it. (laughs) And, you know, they should. (laughs) You know, it's impossible to read stories about people who had their families taken from them. You know, mothers separated from children and husbands separated from wives. It It was a tragic situation, but it happened. And you have to talk about what happened in the past. History is not just the fun things that happened or the good things that happened. And that has to be put forth. So I think that there's a concern about a notion that this will make people unpatriotic. The feelings of white children are, you know, a paramount here saying that, you know, we don't want them to feel bad about things that their great great grandparents may have done. Well, you know, I I don't know what to say about that because those things happened (laughs) and you have to talk about them. And it's pretty much saying as well that the feelings of black children don't matter. Mm. So that if you're a black child and you know that your ancestors were enslaved, you're not supposed to talk about that because you will make your white classmates feel bad. Um, That's that doesn't work. <laughs> you know, that doesn't that doesn't make sense. If if things happen, you have to talk about them. Talk about them in an age-appropriate way. I mean, as we do everything, the way we present matters to children, but they have to be discussed. There are people who don't believe or suggest that the situation that African Americans are in, the sort of inequality that exists, that this is all our own making. And if you talk about the past and you talk about the ways in which society organized 
to stop blacks from advancing. It supports the idea that, you know, we've been up against it, that we've been fighting against. We, we're not, it's not a level playing field. That abstract notion that there are social constructions is something a lot of people are struggling to understand. And if that is, in fact, the case, what does it mean about how we go forward? Yeah, well, I mean, individual character, but I think it's a bit more than that with African-American people. It's it's an indictment of African-American culture, that it is something wrong with us as a people that that explains why we haven't done things, you know. People build up Greenwood, a, a nice uh, town mm. uh, with doctors and lawyers. Mm-hmm. And then when somebody allegedly does something wrong and, and there's no real evidence that he does anything wrong, people use that as an excuse to burn it down. Mm-hmm. You know, and you're, like you're referring to the Tulsa race. Tulsa, yeah, the Tulsa mm-hmm. thing. And things like that have happened, you know, across the South. Not, Tulsa was just one uh, example of that kind of thing. Yes, but you're right. There's this notion that it's about individual merit or the merit of a race of people and that African-Americans are an inferior race. And what has happened here is that through no fault of whites, whites have not done anything to blacks. It's just their own uh, laziness that's caused the problem. But if you talk about history and you talk about segregation, you talk about lynching, all of those kinds of things, you understand that there was a concerted effort in fact, to keep African-American people down. Where does religion come into the story? Well, um, I suppose it comes into the story among African-Americans because many Black people, most Black people have used religion as a coping mechanism for them during slavery and after slavery as a way of maintaining a sense of faith that things would get better. So I think people in the in the black community, many of them have been buoyed by their religious beliefs uh, from the very, very beginning. And certainly religious figures have been more traditionally the leaders in African-American communities. You describe Texas as a promised land to Stephen Austin using almost biblical language. And I'm struck by how the language of liberation and freedom was understood by two different communities in very different ways. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there was, there was a black church and there was a white church. And in the white church, it was eventually, uh, it wasn't always this way, but certainly the pro-slavery ideology in the South was very much tied to uh, religion. I, I remember going through a diary of one of Thomas Jefferson's grandsons who's going through the Bible and finding references to slavery as a way of justifying the existence of, uh, of the institution of slavery. Now, that's something Jefferson would never, never have done uh, in that generation of people. But certainly by the, the time that we're talking about with Juneteenth, these people are the heirs of the Second Great Awakening. And in the South, that tied very much into pro-slavery ideology. And of course, in the North, they went the opposite way. White abolitionists saw in Christianity uh, a call for abolition, the liberation of African-American people. So a lot of it seems to be people using religion as, as it happens to suit their, their particular 
maybe earthly <laughs> desires, uh, uh, answers to things, uh, using religion to, to buttress their views about stuff. So all these people are claiming from the same Bible, um, claiming answers about the, the nature of, or the, the rightness or wrongness of slavery and coming to different conclusions about it. Annette Gordon-Reed is the Carl M. Loeb University professor at Harvard. She's an award-winning author of several books, including The Hemmings of Monticello, An American Family, for which she earned a Pulitzer Prize in History and the National Book Award. She is also the past president of the Society for Historians of the Early American Republic. She is the current president of the Ames Foundation and, over her career, has received many honors, including a Guggenheim Fellowship in the Humanities, a MacArthur Fellowship, the National Humanities Medal, and the National Book Award. Coming up, we pivot from the history to the present day. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. Stay with us. We'll be back after this short break. friends, I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you, and let's get back to the show. (laughs) 